Um, Proverbs 12.2. Here we go with a proverb. Good people obtain favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. That's a good one. Um, if you're new to us or just visiting for the day, um, that's not the, uh, the sermon topic for today. I just like to always dip into Proverbs at the beginning of the message. And since today is the 12th, um, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and a typical month has no more than 31 days, right? So there's always a date equivalent. So today being the 12th, I pick one. That's what I do in case, in, and if you've been here for a long time, you go, what's the deal with a proverb? That's the deal. I figure over time, we will have read the book of Proverbs and just spent a couple minutes on it. Imagine... Um, what's going on in someone's heart when they hear these words from, say, for example, from their wife. I really believe in you, honey. When a woman says this to her husband, what happens inside of that heart? Imagine it when you're a child and you feel like everybody at school makes fun of you all the time, and you don't get the test grades that you want, and you get cut from the volleyball team, and your father says to you, you know what, I I believe in you. And he means it. Imagine what happens in that heart. There are four amazingly powerful words coming from a teacher or a friend or a mother or a father. I believe in you. It's four simple words that say everything about where a relationship is headed. And um, it just makes you better. It makes you a better person when someone says that to you. I mean, when, I, when, I, uh, when Lisa and I occasionally get into a place where we're talking with a couple and maybe helping them through marriage issues, um, I like to ask the question of both of them. I try to do it. Um, it's, 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 it can be dicey sometimes, but I like to look at me in the eye and say, do you believe in your husband? Do you believe in your wife? Especially after something has happened that's just ruptured trust. Um, do you believe in that person? And if they do, there's hope. If they choose to believe, good things can happen. It's an amazing four words. Um, today is the second week in our series about, it's called Believe in You. Last week, a message was available. It's available on the web for free. And today we're going to spend most of our time in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We have three kids. Lisa and I have three uh, kids by, by um by biology, and we have two more by marriage, and um, hope for another one sometime soon, but don't put any pressure on my son, Joseph. It'll happen when it happens. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, as, as parents, we started out just like all of you, never had been parents before. When we became parents, we're trying to figure out this thing, well, what do we do? Do we, you know, at first, you just want to keep them alive, you know, and then pretty soon you, you start thinking you want to keep yourself alive. And then what are you going to do to, um, and, and, and to, to put them on a course that's good for them, that's, that will lead them to what will, what will please Jesus and what's good for them? So you think through, how do you define success? So think this question through. As a parent, how would you define success in parenting your children? Fast forward five or 10 or 15 years and say, okay, if this happened, I successfully parented my kids. You know, what would be the thing? And I just think that question through. I think culture has a very specific answer. I mean, it's a, I mean there's not, you can't look it up somewhere, but I think that culture has an answer to that. Culture says the success is raising well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids. Seem reasonable? Seem like that's what culture says? In spite of one poor little one who's crying in the nursery, bless that baby, you know, 
Give them what they need, Lord. Let's pray for the kids for just a minute, okay? Lord, for our children that are in different places, we know that they're going to hear the word of God, whether they're in a crib or they're in a classroom and they're playing or they're studying or they're coloring. Bless our children, Lord, with, with your presence. Enrich them. Place the gifts of the Spirit upon them. Give them health. Grant to their families your presence. Bless our kids, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, something like that comes to mind. That sometimes sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, sometimes a distraction. I just went with Holy Spirit this time. That's why we prayed. Okay, right? <laughs> so culture says that, that success in raising kids means that they will be well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids. Seems reasonable. How many would say that, yeah, that's what culture says? Anybody? Any, only three of us? Wow, this is going to be a busted sermon because... <laughs> I think that's what culture pretty much says. They need to be, raise your kids, well-educated, well-rounded, and so forth. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I want to think that through for just a minute or two because I'm not so sure. I mean, in my past, one of my past roles was, you know, I came from this big, huge church, and, and um, um, part of my role was to hire people. I hired staff members, and I hired pastors, and I did these kinds of things. And... and um, I didn't really always want to look for well-rounded people, people that were good at a whole bunch of things. I instead tended to look for people who were exceptional at a couple of things. I looked for people who really, really could do that. Well-educated, I'm all for that. I think education is really good. But frankly, as a father, when it comes to my children, I would rather have kids that are full of integrity and full of wisdom than to get A's on their Algebra 2 test. Algebra 2 is good, too. Don't sacrifice that, right? But, I mean, the higher priority to me is character in my kids. That really is a bigger deal. And happiness, happiness is great, you know. Um, And many people in our society, actually, they bow down to the altar of happiness. I mean, that's what everything is about, the pursuit of happiness. But I'd rather see a generation who are joyful. Happiness is connected to happenings, if the right things happen, you can be happy. If I, if I experience the right things, then I can be happy. And joy, joy transcends happening. So in, in, if we contrast culture's definitions with the words of Jesus, we're going to see some clarity show up here, I think. So, you know, well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids that culture is hoping for. Um, it's the good job, have a nice house. You know, maybe have a better life than we did. But Jesus asked a question, and we see that in Matthew 16. He says this, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Wow. Well, well-rounded, well-educated and happy, and yet forfeits his soul. That's a pretty big deal. I would argue all day long that success in raising the next generation is far more, more than what culture says success is. One of our highest callings, our highest callings is to impart spiritual life to the next generation because if they had more than we had, but they don't have a relationship with Christ, in the end, it doesn't amount to anything. It amounts to nothing. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go online and listen. It's available on the church's website. It's free, crossroadsfoursquare.net. I always have to remind people that, especially if you're under 30, because I talked very directly um, with the generation of people that are 30-ish or so and down about what I believe are the three greatest temptations that your generation faces, along with great strengths. And um, 
And so in this series, we're going to work our way through and we're going to eventually talk about this relationship between, um, between old, the older generations and the younger generation, how, how that's supposed to, by, by Bible definition, how it's supposed to work and why every one of us needs a Paul and every one of us needs a Timothy. That'll make more sense as we go. And we'll talk about how we do that, what does it look like, what does it mean to the church. Today, I'm going to spend more time talking to my generation, people that are maybe my my generation, my, my age and a little bit younger, and my age and a little bit older. And we're going to talk about how to impart spiritual life to the next generations that are following along behind us. Now, there is a verse that uh, really captures the essence of what I believe is a divine calling, and uh, it's David's prayer in the Old Testament. And this is, if, if, if you can get yourself into the context here, it's very, to me, it's very moving about this prayer and why he prays this thing. He says, Psalm 71, 18, he says, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me. He's talking to God. He says, don't, let me live longer, God. And why is he praying this? Oh God, till I declare your power to the next generation, you might, your might to all who are to come. So I can declare to the next generation, God, your power and your glory and your goodness, and your love, and your mercy. They haven't lived as long as I've lived. I just need to make sure they understand these things. And somehow, I've got to get that across. I just want to let them know how good you all you are, Lord. Because the greatest calling we have is to impart spiritual life to the next generation. I believe that is our absolute greatest calling. The greatest calling to the next generation. So, I, I, I bristle at the concept that that I don't believe that we're called to raise well-educated, well-rounded, happy kids. On the contrary, I, everything in me says that we're called to raise single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically-anchored world changers. It's so different. I mean, I taught last week that this generation that, we're, that are following along are the most cause-driven, mission-minded people probably um, at all. And they have a sense of divine destiny in them. And we're called to help them discover that destiny. That's what we're called to do. We're called to help them get there. We're helped to figure it out. And um, we're, we're, we're not called to uh, help them be centered on what other people think about them or what culture says. And we certainly don't want them tethered to whatever media tends to pollute our souls with. But instead, they need to be centered around the risen Lord Jesus Christ biblically anchored, knowing who they are, defined by the word of God, not swinging back and forth by every latest thing that comes along on, on Facebook, <laughs> comes along the way on Facebook. Or, And I, I'm, I'm telling you, your nine-year-olds today will be tempted by things and see things that you and I didn't see until we were 19 or older. When they're single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically anchored, there'll be a generation of world changers and... I think it's so important for these kids to be grounded in the world of God because otherwise they're going to be overtaken by the world's very poisonous message. So I know many of you are thinking right now, hey, come on, back off the throttle a little bit, Pastor Terry. Come on, just a little bit. I came to church today just kind of wanting a little lifting up and the worship did a great job of getting me there and now you're telling me I got to do something. I'm coming back up just a little bit. I'm just trying to pay my bills and you know get my kids to baseball practice on time and raise them, you know, without getting them too fat on McDonald's food, you know. <laughs> you know, how can I possibly do this especially when the whole world is kind of working against me? I absolutely absolutely believe that not only are you called to do this, 
but you can do this. You can. You have it in you already. And what you need, the Lord will give you as you go along to do what I'm doing. And I, I want you to know, I, I don't exclude anybody in my belief. Every single one of you. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're 12 or if you're 90 12. <laughs> See, I guess I should have believed in education just a little bit more. <laughs> I do believe in education. He'll give you everything you need to impart life to the next generation. So we're going to see a few things in Scripture here that that you can use, and God will leverage them with you in imparting spiritual life. So now we're going to get to our text today where Moses, here's the deal. Moses has gathered, gathered the entire nation, and he's going to give them a pretty major, this is a State of the Union, bigger than a State of the Union speech, which a president does once a year. This is, this is a major deal where he wants to get them all on the same page about a really, really important subject. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Wow. It's a pretty major thing he's saying here. And uh, I'm going to take this text and spend a little time on it. And I'm going to apply it in, in, in loosely in a few different ways. Um, and see what we have. So I've got, I'm going to give you, I'm going to start with three different ways that we can work with the Holy Spirit to impart spiritual life to the next generation. The first thing I'm going to suggest, first idea is that we need to enlist supporting voices. If you want to impact the next generation as parents, your voice is always going to be the most important voice, but it can't be the only voice. You can't be the only one saying the things that you're saying. So here's, here's Moses. He starts out by saying, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses is saying this to everybody. We're all going to work on this. Everybody get on the same page. We're all going to get it. This isn't just p- to parents and to parents with kids. This is to everybody. And back then, the family unit was a lot different than it is today. I mean, family unit today is different than it was 10 years ago. But back then, the family unit was like you'd have parents and their children and their parents' siblings, so let's say aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and grandchildren. And if you had uh, people in the employment of your family, they were considered family. And in some extreme examples, you know, even animals could be considered family. Poodles, for example, would be considered part of the family. (laughs) I'm chewing on my lip not to say anything else because I get in trouble when I go there. So, you know, it wasn't unusual for a family to be 80 people. Dinner time, although you know that's a lot of spaghetti. Eighty, you know. So, so, so Moses is now saying to the entire tribe, the whole clan, whole nation, he's saying this is your calling. Together, speak into the lives of the next generation. This is Moses saying to a million, millions of people, and you'll see this concept all throughout this. You'll find this this concept is all throughout the Word of God. Um, uh, later in the series, I'll be spending some time talking about a very phenomenal example of, of this, which is the relationship between the Apostle Paul and a guy named Timothy. Timothy was basically the representative of the emerging generation at the time. He was, you know, he was probably a little bit timid, timid at time, and he was 
tentative. He had uh, great lineage. He had a very godly mother and grandmother, Eunice and Lois. And what God did for Timothy was he brought in this outside voice um, who would say, in some cases, the exact same thing his mom was saying to him. Oh, the exact same thing. And for some reason, they got in there when it was coming through the voice of a man, who a man, guy could talk to him um, as a man can sometimes talk to a son. And Paul said some amazing things to him. He said, don't let anybody despise your youth. Don't let that happen. We talked about that some last week. And he said, be an example to all believers. And um, so that's one thing he said to him. Another thing he said to him is he, he, he told him, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And it all just sounded a little bit different to him than it did when it came from his mom. You know, if, if you're a parent, you identify with this. Every parent understands this. There are times when, you know, I mean, I know Lisa and I would say things to our kids very clearly, repeatedly, quietly, loudly, over again. I mean, we would say things to our kids and they didn't hear them. Now, <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> um, and and they, didn't, they just didn't go in. Now, in our culture, our family culture, before we had, we were always around other people. There were other voices speaking into our kids' lives. And... Um, you know, they'd come home one day and somebody on staff at Living Water would say something to them. Hey, this new revelation. Like, it's like, <laughs> and I'd be thankful. Did, did my head make a loud thump? Did that make it through? <laughs> wow. <laughs> is it as loud out there as it is in here? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> I got a whole instrument going on here, don't I? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I've known... <laughs> I'm known around living water as a leader who can completely ruin his own meeting by going off track. Does that surprise you? Probably not. And they'd say these things like this huge new revelation. And, you know, I'm going like, what's wrong with me? Am I chopped liver here or something? I mean, it's like, okay. And quickly I learned, fine, I don't care what vessel that the Lord got this through into my children's soul and their heart. I really don't care. In fact, I'm just excited that the Lord has, is doing these things in, through and through other people. And there would be, be times that, um, that I would just be so glad, so glad. And, and so we're used to this culture where we would uh, speak into the lives of the youth, of the young people, of our, of our friends. And we want them to speak into our children's lives. We want that. We want all of these voices going on. I mean... I have a lot of friends who, you know, because of my age now, they've had daughters growing up about the ages of my kids. And I, you know, would befriend some of these, these girls. And they all expected that by the time that somebody got serious about marrying them, they'd have to go through more than their own father's interview. I'm going to interview these guys too. And they better be good or else. I mean, that's just the culture that I'm used to. And you can do that whether you have kids or not. This is not... You're not qualified to do this because you've produced your own biological children. That is, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. It has zero to do with it. Hear, O Israel. Hear the whole family, the whole nation. You're the church. And you are the voices that need to be imparting the spirit into the next generation. You know, maybe you're a coach. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're the next door neighbor. Maybe you're a barista. 
Maybe you're a musician and they relate to you because you're good with a guitar and you can show them some licks. Maybe you're a youth leader. I don't know what your role is, but your role is to come alongside the parents and help the Lord raise the next generation by giving them life and giving them hope and giving them character and leading them and releasing in them your belief. Remember how we started? Because when we believe in them, something good happens. Something good happens. Okay, so enlist supporting voices. Second thing is to raise the expectations of what we believe that they can do. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with part of your heart and with um, some of your soul and with a little bit of your strength. Is that what it says? Ooh, wait a second. But I messed that up a little bit, didn't I? But isn't that what we do? It is kind of what we do. You know, try little Johnny to be a really good Christian. You know, pastors like me say little Johnny. Then parents won't name their kids Johnny. I don't know what that is. If your name is John, forgive me for that. <laughs> but we, we say, you know, just do your best you can. Try No, that's not what Jesus says here. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He didn't just come along and say, try hard. He said, you want to follow me? Lose your life. You want to find your life? Give up. Lose your life. You want to be one of mine? He says to one guy, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. He says, you know, Jesus, he never ever lowered the standards. Yet, in some ways, for this generation, our whole culture has lowered standards. You know, back in the Old Testament times, it was typical for children to learn and memorize the first five books of Scripture, what we, our first five books, before they were 12. The whole thing. That was common. I mean, I mean, I am blessed that our kids are learning the word here. They learn it in practical ways, and they're learning it literally. I'm so proud of them. Um, Time Magazine coined this, this and they, they, they created this word called kidults. Okay? Kidults. <laughs> they aren't kids. They're not adults. They're kidults. And they know that there is something more, this generation, but they can't quite figure it out. You know, in biblical times... There were kids and there were adults. It was one or the other. By the time you, you got to 12, you were a man. Well, that's if you're a guy, right? <laughs> um, you know, by the time you were 12. And you could get married when you reached puberty. 13, 15. And we would never let that happen today, you know, obviously, because kids, you know, they're just, they're just not ready and they're way too immature. And we've created this segment of time when there's no responsibility or very limited responsibility. And when you're a teenager, think about that. What do we expect? We say, stay in school, don't get anybody pregnant, be in at midnight, you know, just get through school. There's no, it's not so common. We say to them, you need to get a job, you need to pay for stuff. You there's no ministry expectations. In fact, sometimes we say, just go ahead and get through this. Just exist through this because what you're doing today prepares you for real life later on when it starts. I talked about that last week. I think that's, you know, that's stupid. Ooh, can I say stupid? Is stupid on the list of words that I'm permitted to say? Because I was given, um, you know, some coaching last week. Not, okay, all right. <laughs> it's too late because I said the word stupid, didn't I? So here's what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when I was a child, I talked like a child and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, put childish ways behind me. 
I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now, buckle up for a second here, because this is direct talk coming. He didn't say, when I became a teenager, I looked like an adult, but acted like a child. And yet we've given a whole generation permission to look like adults, but to act like a child. I'm saying, raise the expectation. Raise it up. Raise it up. You look at them and you say, you know what? <laughs> There's more in you than this. There's more in, in you than what your friends say or behave like. There's more in you than this. Let it go. Let it out. You know, there's an interesting kind of a new normal. I mean, this is shifting. Studies have said this fact is true, you know, um, that up to 70% of people who graduate from college now move back home after college. 70%. Now, um, when, you know, I've had lots of exposure to college-age kids because of the church I was in before we had discipleship programs and they were always around and I would spend time with them and I taught them classes and I did different things and met with them and we had them into our home a lot so I had lots of opportunities to talk with them and I asked about that and when I would say you know for my generation which they you know it's crotchety old Pastor Terry talking about the olden days again you know no it wasn't quite like that or wasn't quite like that anyway I would say (laughs) with my with my generation you know, going back home wasn't normal. In fact, it might have been considered abnormal to graduate from college and then move back home. It's like going back. And so there's sometimes in those conversations there's either some embarrassment or, or de- defensiveness. And I don't mean to create that here because there are times when it's appropriate and right. I'll mention that in a minute. But I get this common response. Well, but all my friends do it and we do it for financial reasons as if somehow they think that when we came out of college we were loaded you know, you know, I mean, I had friends that, you know, shared a house and there was lots of them and, you know, one of them slept in the bathtub, you know, and they survived it. Although I heard some of the stories, I'm surprised they survived those days, um, you know, but, but when I say nobody moved back home because it wasn't even an option, it wasn't, just wasn't an option. Their jaws dropped to the floor and they go, what, what, didn't your parents love you? You know, Right. <laughs> <laughs> as if somehow that was an actual measurement of love. Of course they loved us. It just wasn't the way we thought. It wasn't the way we were raised. It wasn't what we, what we were taught. And, you know, I mean, I know sometimes it's appropriate. I'm just pointing out how this has shifted. And I think, I think if your children, if for some reason, and you have a specific purpose and a specific season that you, that you do that, then God bless you. Do the right thing. But, at some point, you know, by the time you get to 37, it's time to say, you know, you need to start doing your own laundry and grow up, right? <laughs> and if they do move home, maybe they should move home without the Xbox. Okay, that was a low blow. No Xbox comments. <laughs> so raise the expectation. You know, you don't want to stunt their growth by babying them, obviously. And I, I think that you can tell them the truth, which is, you know, you can accomplish and do some things today. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You can minister at 13 or 19. Life doesn't start at 32. You can minister today. I mean, our children knew some family expectations, you know, way before they got to college. We kind of had some, some general guidelines where we would said to them, you know, by the time you get to 15 or 16, you either need to be in, you know, after school sports or something like that, or 
flipping hamburgers, making money, either A or B. Just, you know, you got to be doing something like that. And we provided for our kids shelter and food and reasonable clothes, you know. But when issues, like if there was some couture style that they had to have, that's on them. They got to go out and flip enough hamburgers to buy the Vera Wang dress. (laughs) Don't look at me like you don't know what a Vera Wang dress is. You guys need to watch Project Runway more. I can tell you something. I've heard all about it from Lisa. (laughs) And we didn't pay for our children's college education. We told them we would help them pay for it. Okay? We pushed this issue. We wanted our kids to go. We we really believed, you know, we believe in education. Might not sound like it before, but we, we didn't say we would pay this for them. We said we will help you pay for them pay for it. And our goal was to help them by, by somewhere 50-50, some, some rough amount. Uh, roughly, we wanted to help them in, uh, some. And um, they knew that. They knew before they got there that there was going to be this expectation. And, um, you know, God is really always been, this is a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail to go down, but God has really always been a um, way involved in the Fisher's family's financials deal. We have, we have, here's what I mean by that. We, we live as best we can by what the word teaches us about this. We believe in tithing. We believe that the first 10% of every penny that we see doesn't belong to us. It doesn't, the word says it's not ours. It says it's his. So we give that back to him. We haven't even given an offering. When we give 10%, we haven't given God anything. We just didn't take what was his. So we, here, this is yours. It's not mine. And then we would, when the Lord spoke to us, as our heart was persuaded, we would give offerings. That's the way we've lived. And here's what comes with that. What comes with that is a continuous sense of peace that, that our finances, as long as we stay within the Lord's will, it's his responsibility, not ours. Now, as parents, we say, God, we think it's important in this society, in this world, that they go through college. But have you seen tuition prices lately, God? Right? Do you realize how much it costs to put somebody in a dorm room and just pay for their, you know, that weird French toast they serve in the cafe? And I mean, and they got to eat that all. It, it costs a lot of money. God sees those things and he knows. Now, our kids were diligent. They did their part. Um, and I'd love to take credit for this next thing I'm going to tell you. But I'm telling you, it was God. Um, they did running start and they did different things. But all three of our kids went to... to um, University of Washington um, or, you know, big colleges. And they, in four years, went through and graduated, and they were debt-free. No student loan on them or on us. And they walked out of college, you know, with the hat and the tassel, and they didn't have a bill to pay. That's remarkable today. And I I would love to to take the credit for it. I can't. I want to tell you that was the grace of the Lord financially upon us. But we had a plan that we knew honored his word, and we stuck to it. And part of that was that our children knew in advance that they were going to participate in something that was their future, and the responsibility was there. I mean, we just had, we raised our expectations, and they rose to it in their different ways. They rose to it. We just got done having VBS here. We're running, we're, we're, we're running out of uh, little gift cards for memory verses because we've had a swamp of children coming and you know, sharing memory verses. with. I love those pictures. But if you had been here during VBS, you would have seen many of the leaders were, I would say youth. I would call them youth, okay? Um, and it's not because we didn't have enough adult leaders. We had 
we had a terrific adult to child ratio. We had, I think, a, a peak was like 57 kids. And there was, I don't know how many adult leaders. We probably had 20, 25. I was a lot. It was a lot. The ratio was great. So, but, the, uh, but many leaders were also youth. And I watched them. They were doing it. They were, they were putting the hope of God into little children. They were being wise and they were being loving and they just spent time with these kids and they did a terrific job. And they, now the church, the church was benefiting because of the diligence of parents who's, who've raised kids and said, you know what, you can minister today. You can make a difference today. Instead of telling them what they can't do, these parents were telling their kids what they can do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength. And I'm just really grateful. Enlist supporting voices raise expectations. And then the third and the final point is when it comes to sharing our faith with this generation, we have to keep it real. We have to keep it real. There's Moses again in Deuteronomy 6. Impress them on your children. Watch as he talks about making faith a part of your daily life here. Talk about them when you sit at home. This could be a dinner time. Could be a normal conversation. You're just doing life. And when you walk along the road, or take them to band practice, or baseball, or you just talk about spiritual things. When you lie down, this is bedtime when you pray together, and when you get up, now maybe this is a scripture in the morning, just make, making faith a natural part of your life. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, God is not a part of your life. He is your life. He's not just an add-on He's the center of everything you do. Now, here's where I get pushback from parents sometimes about this. They say to me, well, I don't want to shove God down their throats. And that's a really good point. That's a fair point. It's a really fair point. Because when I, when I look back at my experience and I watch what I've seen, if you shove it down their throats and there's hypocrisy in the home, they will flat out reject it 100% of the time. Every time. When what you say does not line up with what you do, they'll just reject it really fast. On the other hand, though, if your faith is really real for you, they're going to see the benefits. They're going to see the Lord's peace and the authenticity is there. They're going to crave that kind of, a, uh, that, that kind of intimacy with the Lord themselves when it's real in you. If it's not real, they can smell it. Raising kids successfully is not about how cool you are or how hip you are, although I can tell you are a hip crowd. <laughs> if you're not real, they won't buy anything that you're saying. It's kind of like China faith, you know, China, you know, China plates. Some of us have somewhere in the cupboard these China plates. They're really beautiful. They're, in fact, they're so nice that we don't even pick them up. We don't ever use them. They just stay on the shelf. You know, it's like their faith is, some people's faith is kind of like that. You know, th there is a God and there is a church thing. But, and we, I know it's really special and I know it's really valuable, but it's, I don't really use it every day because it might break. He's not a part of our daily lives. If he's not, you can't expect the next generation to follow. If you want them to read God's word, let them see you reading the Lord, Lord's word. If you want them to be people of prayer, let them catch you face down sucking carpet, pleading before the Lord, trusting him to answer your prayer. If you want them to make church a priority, 
And you have to make it a priority. You know, in your life too, you got to skip something else sometimes. You know, if you want God to be a priority, let them see you skipping something else and making being in the house of the Lord. I'm not preaching to the choir because you're here. But there's a principle here that your kids can see. If you want them to have biblical fellowship, if you see them running with kids that you think, oh, I just don't like them running with this group of kids. But you don't have believers as the primary people speaking into your life. Don't ask your kids to do something that you won't do yourself. So if you want them to live with integrity, live with integrity. If you want them to stop pursuing the things of the world and to live for something that matters, you need to stop going into debt to buy things you don't need with money you don't have. Because that sends them a message that stuff is what makes you happy and they can see it. They need to see the reality of the presence of God in your lives. And when they see it, they'll want it. They will want it. You can do this. <laughs> you can do this. We're not called to raise a generation of well-educated, well-rounded, happy kids. The thing is that if you settle for wanting them to have more of what you had rather than doing more than you did, you're sacrificing them on the altar of materialism. I'll say that one more time. If you're willing to settle for wanting them to have more than you had instead of wanting them to do more than you did, you're sacrificing them on the altar of materialism. Believe in them. Enlist other supporting voices, raise expectations, and then keep it real because God has called you and me to unleash a generation of single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically-anchored world changers. You can do it. Let's pray.